Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your Bibles, you can do me a courtesy. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 17. Uh, We'll be in verses 16 through 30-ish, roughly. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, let me just throw this out to you. We had somebody who was kind enough to donate a ton of them to us. And so on that kind of small, unassuming little bookshelf, there's probably about 15 or 20 Bibles. And then there's a few on our book table as well. So if you need one and you don't have one, that's yours to keep. Uh, If you have one and forgot to bring it, please don't take it because other people need it. So uh, let me just say that. And as you are turning to uh, Acts 17, uh, 16 through 30, a couple announcements that I kind of want to lay before you. So we mentioned at the beginning of this year is uh, that one of my hopes in this ministry in the coming year is that we would see a bit of a deepening in our knowledge of God and our understanding of who he is and what he's like and how that affects how we live, uh, that we would maybe understand scripture a little bit better and how it applies uh, to our lives and what it demands of us as a people of the word. And so one of the, let's call it a means that I'm hoping God is going to use to accomplish that is this class that we're going to be starting on Sunday afternoons. It's called Basic Christianity. Uh, and it's only 45 minutes. It goes from 4.30 to 5.15. So it, it is going to expect you to get here a little bit earlier than normal. And so I, I will say that up front. Yes, you're probably going to have to hang out a bit earlier. But the hope in this class is that as we walk through the, the basics of what it means to be a Christian, that even for those of us who've been walking with God for a long time, we might find some new insights. Because uh, the truths of the Christian faith are deep and they're inexhaustible. And so uh, just because you knew it at one point doesn't mean that you can't know it better. And so it's free and I would commend it to you. Uh, There's a sign-up sheet in the back. We start on the 6th of February and we'll be in one of the portables in the back. So if you would give us your name and then the best way to contact you. I can get you more information. If you just want to test the waters, you're welcome to come the first week and we'll kind of explain the process of how we're going through uh, the basics of the faith, and you can decide if you want to jump ship or, or you're on board with, with it, so to speak. So uh, let me lay that before you as one thing. Also, the book table in the back is open once again. Reagan, the booksmith, is faithfully manning it. There's wonderful mood lighting with those candles. Um, I think there's three. It's kind of Trinitarian, so it's cool. I didn't do that on purpose, but... Um, but those are free to you as well. Uh, let me say this, that, that as long as you give us your name and you give us your contact information and you agree to read the book and email me a couple times through the process, you can keep it. Uh, there is no, no price associated with it. But if you get a chapter in and go, I hate this, I'm not going to read it, bring it back for somebody else. That would be the only thing that we would ask. And then last but not least, uh, as you're getting to Acts 17, one last announcement, the Women's Resource Center still needs jelly. And so if you want to forego like a pumpkin spice latte, that's not even a thing right now, is it? Forego some Starbucks drink and buy some jelly instead for people in need in our community. Um, so with those things being said, Acts 17, we're continuing in this series that we began a few weeks ago uh, called The People of God. And, and what we're doing is discussing what the church is and what the purpose of the church is. And our time on this topic, covering and tackling these issues, is born out of this conviction we have here that many Christians define the church today wrongly, that they misunderstand what the church is. Because I think consciously or subconsciously, and, and I've been in this category at different stages in my life, we have this thought that kind of permeates the way we view the church as though the church is itself a human invention. Uh, Maybe it's a relic of a a past season of Christendom. Uh, And it might even be something getting in the way of what God wants to do in the world. 
Uh, We may not say that explicitly, but we imply that when we make statements that become pretty common these days, like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Now, I'm not going to say that I haven't said that before because I have, and so I am not projecting onto everybody else some mistakes that I haven't made myself, but, but I think it is a common saying, and I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, we make that statement, and it sounds edgy, just like saying Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, even though that's not actually entirely accurate either. It's both, in case you're wondering. We can talk after. Um, but, but it sounds edgy to say, I, I hate the church, but I love Jesus. The problem is that that statement doesn't square well with the New Testament. And it doesn't really even square well with the things that Jesus himself said about the church. Right? So in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter makes this profession. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, man hasn't revealed this to you. God has. On this rock, I will build my church. And the last 2,000 years has been Jesus making good on that promise, building his church. And if this is the case, then how can we as Christians say, I love Jesus, I just hate the thing he's building? Or again, in Paul's letters, we say things like, or Paul rather, we don't say it. You didn't write this book, by the way. Um, Paul says this when he's talking to husbands and wives. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And then he goes on to explain that. Christ loved the church so much that he died for her, that he gave himself up for her. Square that with, I love Jesus, I just hate the thing he died for. It doesn't work. So, Our time together is born out of this conviction that the church is not simply a good idea that some people came up with, but it is the very work of God. That the church is not man's invention, but it is God's work. And God chooses to work through men, but the church is not ultimately man's possession. And if this is true, that the church is God's workmanship, then what it means is that you and I cannot remake the church in our own image because it doesn't belong to us. We can't come to the church and say, I want this, this, this. This is kind of lame. You should stop doing that. This, this, and this. And then, then maybe, maybe I'll love Jesus and the church. Because the church is not yours. You didn't die for it. You haven't purchased it with your blood. The church is Christ's. And because it is Jesus's, and because it seems to be the way that God has chosen to work in the world, then we as the people of God need to take that seriously and say, okay, If Jesus gave himself up for the church, if Jesus is building his church, what are the things that Jesus, as the head of the church, wants this thing of his to be committed to? And so that's what we have been examining, is what are these marks of the church? What are these things that scripture seems to lay on us as the people of God, things we should be committed to? And there's really two hopes in our time together, two hopes that of things that I I desire for the Lord to do if he so wills it among us. One is that I hope you'll be encouraged because some of the greatest Christians have been people who love the church uh, but weren't blind to the fact that that the church was full of sinners. But I hope that in our time of discussing what the church is and how how God desires to use the church, I hope you'd grow in your love for it. But, But another thing I hope that you're encouraged by is if you're a part of a church either here at Bay Life or maybe you go somewhere else in the local community and we start talking about here's the things that Jesus wants his church to be about and you can look at your church and say, hey, we do those things. And I never understood why we did those things, but now I do. Rejoice in that. Be be excited about that, that God has brought you to a place where his people take the charge of being his people seriously. (laughs) 
So that's one hope, but the other side of the coin, the negative side of the coin that I love because I'm negative, (laughs) the other side of the coin is this. I hope there's conviction as well. Because anytime we come to God's commandments and his expectations of us, the reality is as fallen people, we will fall short of them. And so when we examine the things that Jesus says as the head of the church, I desire this thing for my bride, there will be times where we have to say, as a church, we failed. As, as the church, we haven't lived up to this expectation. And in those instances, can we repent and try to do better? So, so it's, it's a twofold desire as we examine these things. And so the last two weeks, as I said, we've been kind of laying a foundation of what are the, what are the most defining things about the people of God. Uh, and the first thing that we talked about is that the people of God are a people of the word. Uh, the reality is that, that it's across both testaments, this, this attribute of God, that when he creates, he creates by his word. He speaks the cosmos into being in Genesis 1. When he begins to create his people in the nation of Israel, it's the word of the Lord that comes to Abraham and calls him out of his homeland. When the people of Israel mix with the people of Egypt, he calls them out by the word going to Moses through a burning bush. When the people of Israel fall into idolatry, the prophets step into Israel and say, hear the word of the Lord. So the people of God are a people of the word. And, and here's what that means fundamentally. And it's most bare, bone, bare bones level. What it means for you and I as, as members of a church is that the true church, the church of the living God, is comprised of people who come together under the authority of the word made flesh, which is Jesus, and the word that has been written in scripture. And so even more practically, let me just make this promise to you that you're never going to come in on a Sunday night and I'm going to say, would you turn in your copies of Moby Dick to chapter 2 and we will begin our reading for the evening. Because we're not a people of words, we're a people of the word. And we come not into submission to every book ever written, but in submission to this book as the people of God, and we are defined by this. And so if it ever comes to a point where you find yourself seeking another church or you move to a new location and you're looking for a church, uh, let, let me just plead with you to seek out a community of believers who sit in glad submission to the word of God. But we said last week that we perhaps have not gone far enough in simply saying that we're a people of the word. I was reading a statement of faith by a church in Louisville, And they preface their statement of faith by saying this, we have not gone far enough if we only say we believe the Bible and we believe in Jesus. We need to go a step further and say we believe that the Bible teaches something specific and that we believe that Jesus is somebody specific. There is, um, there's a plurality of things that could be contained in the statement, I believe in Jesus, right? We could be dealing historically. You, You believe that Jesus was a person that lived during a time. And anybody can make that profession. Or we could say that we believe that Jesus was a prophet. And Christians have often made the distinction that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. But he's not just a prophet. Muslims would say that we believe in Jesus. We believe that he's a prophet, second only to Muhammad. But again, that's not a Christian statement. You can say you believe in Jesus, but if that's what you mean by it, then then we're not dealing with Christianity. We're dealing with something else. Or you can say, I believe that Jesus was the first thing that God created, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. But again, we're not dealing with Christianity. We're dealing with something else. And so what we believe about what the Bible teaches and who Jesus is, is central to our identity as the church. And what I'm not saying here is that there aren't issues that godly Christians can't come to and say, 
I lean this way, I lean that way, but we're both in the faith, right? There are issues of disagreement and sometimes profound disagreement on issues that that have a real bearing on how we worship together, but they're in-house debates. They're, They're things that we can discuss together. When we talk about being a people of the word, but a people who confess certain things about the word, what we're saying is that the gospel is not a vessel that can be emptied and filled with different things with each passing generation, But instead, it is something filled with a specific content, and our job is not to dump it out and replace the content, but instead to preserve it and pass it on to the next generation till the Lord comes. Which is why Jude says that there's a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and why Paul tells Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words and doctrine, because there's specific things that comprise the gospel that we have to be committed to, even while recognizing that there's other things we can disagree on. So I've told you, and I've said... Several times, the importance of this, of these issues, uh, is that we're building a firm foundation, right? Because I recognize uh, I'm the kind of person that when I get really excited about an idea, I want to go do it tomorrow. Uh, Or maybe tonight if it's not too late. And so Corey can attest to the number of times I've come up with something and at three in the morning said, I have a crazy idea. Can we do it this week? And he goes, that's impossible. You should think about it for a while. So I recognize, I, I, I get that, that we, we want to move to practicality rather than just kind of the theory behind all this. But here's the deal. If we want to put boots on the ground, we need to make sure that the ground is solid and it's steadfast. And if we want to move into not just what the church is about, but what the church does, these core aspects of our identity have to be firm and they have to be steadfast so that we can move forward in light of them. And so as a people of the word and as a confessing people saying that the gospel is a container with specific content. We move to some boots on the ground, which is the the topic of evangelism. And I said we were going to do discipleship, but I realize that you can't disciple people who aren't Christians yet. So we're starting with evangelism, and we'll get to discipleship next week. So this word gospel, some of you have likely heard this, but it's a Greek word, uh, which means good news. And so at the core of the Christian teaching, the gospel is a pronouncement of good news. And I don't know if you've had friends who have gone through any sort of health issues. I've had a few. I had a friend who really had some difficulties with cancer. And when he finally came back clear, what he didn't do was get the papers and just burn them and never speak of it again. Right? He, he announces this good news to us in, in a text, and we threw a party, and we celebrated, and, and there was this joy, because good news is not meant to be kept to yourselves. It's not meant to be hidden in your room or in your closet, but instead to be announced and pronounced and declared. And this is what Jesus says to us in the Great Commission. Uh, as he commissions the apostles to go and by his spirit to build the church, he says, go and preach the gospel. Go and declare the good news to all creation, making disciples. And so we as the church, as the people of God, as a people of the word, as a confessing people saying that the gospel is this, this this is what we are about, now that we've laid that foundation, we can go forward and now we have something to declare. It's not simply an empty vessel because if we go forth to declare good news that's an empty vessel, that good news just becomes whatever the culture wants to hear at any given moment. But if there's a body of faith, once for all delivered, that is unchanging, then that good news speaks into culture in spite of wherever it finds itself. So we as the people of God are meant to be a, an evangelistic people. But, but here's a couple things I want to lay down as, as we're in Acts 17 looking at how Paul does evangelism in Athens. There's a couple things I don't want to do. It would be really easy for me to 
get a lot of cheap laughs out of like the street preachers that you run into. Or if you've been uh, to Ebor really any night of the week and you see the Turner Burn sign folk. Um, I, I, I'm not really interested in commenting on method here. Um, as, as far as I can tell, that doesn't seem to work super well. But I don't know. God, I mean, the Lord has used crazier things. He's spoken out of the mouth or the mouth of a donkey. And so, um, so I'm, I'm not going to comment whether or not you should be uh, handing out tracts or whether or not you should go and just with your megaphone just go at it in the middle of a... Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do here other than don't be a butthole. Truthfully, that's the only ground rule I'm going to lay is that you, you attract more people with honey than vinegar. And so... Um, what I'm more concerned with is the philosophy of, of why we do evangelism and, and how we think about evangelism as opposed to whether or not it's tracks or you yelling through a megaphone or you having a cup of coffee. And I think in a lot of ways we've gotten evangelism wrong in the modern church, and I hope that this text speaks to that. So we're in Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16, and we'll read through uh, to verse 23. We're told that in the previous... Uh, section that Paul is waiting on Silas and Timothy to come and meet with him in Athens. And 16 picks up, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Luke adds this interjection where he says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, which sounds very much like a Starbucks crowd but that's just me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed alongside and observed the objects of your worship. I found also this altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then Paul begins his explanation of the gospel to the Greeks. Now, I don't think there's a single portion of this segment of scripture that is not instructive for what it looks like us, uh, what it looks like for us to be evangelistic in a way that is God honoring but also uh, biblical. So let's let's begin first and foremost with the setting of the way in which Paul is doing evangelism. He finds himself in Athens. Athens is a Greek city, if you weren't aware, and apparently all they do in Athens is hang out and talk about philosophy. And so that could sound like your dream or your worst nightmare, depending on your disposition, I guess. But he finds himself in Athens. And in Athens, we're told that he was provoked in his spirit because he noticed that the city was full of idols. And I wonder, at least in this, this first instance, what the impetus for Paul's evangelism is as opposed to what ours is. Because I think for some of us, we share our faith because we've been told that that's what we ought to do. And so we feel compelled to do it, not out of any love for the lost or any affinity for the gospel. We do it because that's what we're supposed to do, and we're bad Christians if we don't. Uh, we share our faith because that's what we were told by our youth pastors that we ought, ought to do, right? You, you share your faith if you're a Christian. But that's not what we're told Paul does. 
We're not told that Paul, under compulsion, goes, men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. Uh, This is not a dispassionate engagement. Instead, Paul is provoked by two things. In walking through the city, he notices that it is filled with idols, which means that men have given their allegiance to lesser gods that cannot save. Paul is provoked because he sees that men have placed their hope in gods who do not speak, have not spoken, and in whom there is no salvation. Paul is provoked by a passion for the lost, not a contempt. He doesn't despise these people. He's concerned about them. He loves them. The second thing he's provoked by is the fact that God is not being honored as he ought to be because the worship that is due to the true triune God is being given instead to created things and statues. Paul's concern shows up again in the first chapter of Romans where he says that men have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a lie. They've worshiped images of created things instead of the creator. Paul is concerned about this. He's consumed about the fact that men have placed their hope in something that can't save them and that this thing that they've placed their hope in that hope would better be placed in the living and the true God. I wonder if that's our burden for evangelism, that we actually care about the lost, that we actually believe that there is hope in Jesus and not in other things. I wonder when the last time there was actually a fire in your bones, so to speak, about people who are cut off from the Lord and don't know the truth and the hope of the gospel. And I can confess to you, there's seasons where I don't care. I I don't feel like I care at least. And I feel like my evangelism, if, if we could call it that, is, is compulsion. It's just because it's what I know that I'm supposed to do. But that's not why Paul shares the gospel. It's because he genuinely loves people. And he genuinely wants their well-being. And he genuinely cares about the glory of God. So Paul is compelled for this reason to go and to share the gospel. So we read uh, that out of this compulsion... He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews, with the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be here. And some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to converse with him as they overhear him. And they say, what does this babbler wish to say? Which in my mind presents this mental image that Paul is actually so worked up that he's like, he's like shaking and stumbling over his words. I don't know if that's actually what happened, but, but I can just see Paul looking at the idols and he's like, oh, and then... What, what are you trying to say? Um, maybe not. But, but they, they ask, well, what are you trying to say? And so they invite him to the Oropagus so that he can explain it more clearly. May we know this new teaching. Uh, may, we know that, may, may we know what this new teaching that you are preaching is. For you bring some strange things to our ears. At this point, when we read the book of Acts, what we, what we notice about where the church is at if you're unaware of this, there's not cathedrals in the first century, right? St. Peter's Basilica is not a thing yet. But the church is meeting together. And very early on in Christian history, Christians begin meeting on the Lord's Day on Sunday, the day of the resurrection. They gather in each other's homes. They take communion. They pray. They open and read aloud the scriptures. So there is some sort of church that is going on. But I want you to notice how Paul does his evangelism. Instead of going to the Oropagus and saying, hey, come to my house church. Paul instead goes into the context of the people to whom he's evangelizing. There is a, there is a sense of... There's an anemic understanding of evangelism right now because I think many of us grew up in in this world where uh, youth pastors and people with sincere hearts who love the Lord would say, 
hey, are you telling your friends about Jesus? Invite them to church. As though those two are the equivalent. As though your job is to get them here, and then my job is to get them into the kingdom, right? But Paul does not invite them. Instead, he goes to them. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the Oropagus. He stands in the public square, and he engages culture on its own terms, uh, rather than retreating back to the church and saying, come to church with me, and the pastor will explain it. And this is a fundamental flaw in our evangelism. Now, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't invite your friends to church. I think that's a great thing. I hope you invite your friends here on Sunday nights or wherever you go on Sunday mornings. But that is not evangelism in and of itself. And what you'll notice about the way that Paul engages with these men is that he would probably have been a better evangelist and was a better evangelist than any of the people in those churches would have been because they were all Jewish. And Paul was Jewish, but Paul knows culture. Later on in this text, Paul is going to quote their own poets and philosophers to them. None of the people in these house churches know what, what any of this stuff is. They don't understand Stoicism and Epicureanism. Paul goes into the culture, and he goes with such an understanding of Scripture and such an understanding of what we confess as Christians that he can bring it to bear on where people are. And so let me, let me say this. I've, I love the fact that people bring their friends to church, but you're a better witness to your friends than I am because you know where your friends actually are and you can speak into the culture in which they're currently dwelling. One of the coolest experiences I've had in a Bible study, a friend of mine named Phil, we're in this Bible study for like hardcore and punk rock kids and kids into loud, angry music that makes their moms cry. And, and I remember sitting in the service and we were going, well, service, it was a Bible study. We're going through First John and in it, John begins by saying, I was an eyewitness to Jesus and his ministry. And based on the fact that, that I saw what Jesus did and what he was like, I need to correct some things that you're doing that aren't in keeping with what Jesus taught. And so he's, he's teaching this to a bunch of punk rock kids, and, and he, he draws on this guy who is this really old man who books shows. He's like, he's like 45. His name's Tom. And, and he's just been booking shows for the last 200 years, basically. And, and anytime Tom speaks... Anytime Tom says, yeah, that's not really a punk rock band, everybody listens. Everybody listens because Tom was there when it started. So Tom knows. And so, and so Phil takes this and he brings it into context and he says, what, what John is doing here is like what Tom might do when he says, yeah, that's not real hardcore or punk rock because I was there when it started. I know what this is about. And for kids who are in that community, that context was better than any stuffy old white dude in skinny jeans at 45 still trying to hold on to his balding hairline could have done. Because he was able to put it in context. So understand, when Paul goes to evangelize, he steps into culture rather than trying to drag people out of it. And without swallowing any of culture's uh, presuppositions, he begins to quote their own poets back to them. He begins to quote the Stoics and the Epicureans, and you can see that if you've got a footnoted Bible, uh, verse 28, all of verse 28 is him quoting their own philosophers back to them. So Paul does not simply bring people to church, but instead he goes to the lost, and he meets them where they're at. And I think that says something for our evangelism. Uh, the last point that I would make here, what initially attracts the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers in verse 18, we're told this. Some Epicureans and Stoics also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Let me put you in historical context for a second. The incarnation of the Son of God and the resurrection were both profoundly offensive to Epicureans and Stoics. If you're not aware of the backgrounds here, the Epicureans had this sense that maybe there was a God and maybe he created or there were gods and they created, but they had stepped far, far back. They did not hear prayers. They did not delight in burnt offerings or sacrifices. They did not care. They were far removed and distant. And so for Paul to preach Jesus was to say that God is not distant as you have always thought, but he is so close that you can see the lines on his face in the person of Jesus for the Stoics, who despised emotion and the, the lingering and clinging aspect of emotional devotion, and, and they didn't like being reliant on material things, Paul says, not only is God not distant, as the Epicureans think, he's also close, and, he, and he's submitted himself to creation. As much as you want to get out of it, Stoics, as much as you think that created things are bad and spirit's the only good thing, God is not only close but he's become a person and he ate food and he wept and he got angry. Here's what Paul does is he doesn't censor the gospel so as to not offend people. And you'll notice that later on in the text um, in verse 33, or I'm sorry, verse 32, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Why? Because this is ludicrous to us. We have this faulty understanding that somehow we've progressed so far scientifically that now we know that people don't come back from the dead. Everybody's always known people don't come back from the dead, right? Or we think that we've gotten so far now that that virgin birth, who can believe that now? It was weird back then. There was never a time where people thought virgins give birth all the time, okay? Uh, But especially for the Epicureans and the Stoics, Paul doesn't censor the gospel so as to not offend them. Essentially, what he does in preaching Christ and the resurrection is say, everything you've ever thought about God and the human experience are entirely wrong. And he's willing to do that. I wonder how many people have been tricked into the kingdom of God because people have left out critical components of the gospel so that it sells a bit easier. Perhaps you've been sold on a health and wealth gospel that if you believe in Jesus, everything will start going great. All the bad things will go away. Or maybe you've been sold into the kind of gospel that doesn't actually require the death of the Son of God because you've never actually been told that you're a sinner, which is what necessitates God becoming man. Paul is not willing to spay and neuter the gospel so that people aren't offended by it. And I think that's important for our evangelism. First and foremost, that we are burdened for the souls of men and that we desire to see God glorified. Second, that we're willing to speak into context rather than just bringing people to church and hoping something happens. And third, that we don't censor the full gospel of Jesus in the hopes that it'll be more digestible. There is nothing about this message that is a digestible. It is a call to die. There's profound joy in it but it is not easy. And Paul has no intention of making it easy. He has every intention of telling the truth. The people of God have good news, but the good news starts with bad news, and we can't cut the bad news out without destroying the good news. A final point about the way that Paul evangelizes. Um, 
In the 50s, there was a salesman who wrote a book called Soul Winning Made Easy. It's ridiculous. Um, In the book, he describes how to convert somebody uh, as though this is a formula. And he describes it in this way. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder. And with a semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. Note, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. Then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know that his heart has yielded. Here's the, here's the great tragedy though. is as ridiculous as that sounds to us. Many of us think that there's a formula that's just gonna get people saved. And there's not. There's just not. And Paul understands this. There is a gospel that saves and there's a burden on the people of God to proclaim that gospel. But the conversion and the saving is always God's work. And we see this in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 48, where we're told that Paul preaches to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And in verse 48, it says, And then when the Gentiles heard his preaching, they began to rejoice, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's an interesting text because what it is saying, essentially, is that the people who believed did not believe because Paul made a compelling argument. They didn't believe because he was rhetorically convincing. They didn't believe because he had super interesting things to say. They believed because they were appointed to eternal life because the Father was drawing them. And this is what it means in evangelism is that you save nobody, no matter how earnest you are, no matter how culturally relevant you are. Uh, No matter how upfront about the gospel message you are, it is your job to evangelize. It is God's job to save. Because nobody saves but the Lord of hosts. And so we as the people of God rest in these things as a people of the word, as a confessing people with a burden for the souls of men, a passion for God's glory. We know the truth, we know the gospel, we step into culture, but we recognize that ultimately every good and perfect gift, including salvation, comes from God. And that should be a comfort to you because it means that it doesn't fall on your shoulders making the best argument or being the most persuasive or laying your hand firmly on somebody's shoulder. It's the people of God, people of the word, a confessing people, and an evangelistic people. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and God, we just ask that you would meet with us now, uh, as you always do, Lord. You are so faithful uh, to make good on your promise to build your church, to meet with your people around the table, uh, and this supper that Jesus instituted on the night he was betrayed. Father, um, I don't profess to know what the best way to share the gospel with people is, but I know that it is a calling, and it should be a passion. And sometimes that passion grows dull and I experience it. Uh, Lord, I pray that where it has, that you would uh, fan into our hearts a flame, uh, just a a desire um, not to be overbearing, not to be condescending, um, but to live faithfully. And God, I pray now that as we come to your table, you meet with us again. Uh, You remind us of your goodness, uh, of this gospel that we proclaim, uh, that the uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, he was buried, and he rose for the forgiveness of our sins. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.